welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I am doing great, David. Thank you very much. So uh, last week, uh, news broke of a new congressional uh, caucus that uh, appears to be in the, the uh, birthing stages, the America First Caucus. And we'll talk about the what maybe the title of the caucus, America First, is problematic. But the thing that, that caught a lot of people's attention was a line in their uh, manifesto, uh, which called for the common respect for uniquely Anglo-Saxon political traditions. Uh, and uh, this is a caucus that was that appeared to have been established by by Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, the congresswoman from Georgia, and uh, Paul Gozer, the congressman from Arizona, as long as a few others seem to be associated with it. Um, this seems to be a, a stillborn caucus. She seems to have walked back uh, this idea uh, after some, some criticism over the weekend, but we wanted to unpack Anglo-Saxonism, which seems to be one of the elements of this new caucus's manifesto uh, that has uh, gotten a lot of, of discussion uh, in the past few days. Well, particularly because they said Anglo-Saxon political culture, if memory serves. Political that, traditions. Political traditions. traditions. And, and, and uh, that set off an alarm for me um, because Jefferson had a lot to say about this. Uh, and, and yes, so there was a backlash over the weekend. I mean, quite furious backlash, actually. So much so that, as you say, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for one, backed away from this. This is a woman who usually has sought to court controversy um, in her brief time in Congress, yet she backed off, in part because some of the backlash and the, and the uh, negative feedback came from her own party, I think. More, rather than a yeah, bunch of academics on Twitter. Um, exactly. I mean, there are people <laughs> in their own party who, who, who said that anyone who joins this caucus should be you know, removed from their committee assignments, uh, which, given the nature of the Republican Party right now, is a pretty extreme uh, uh, you know, censure of, of it. Yeah, David, you probably won't get this reference because you don't follow um, football as closely as I do, that is soccer. Uh, but there's, at the moment, we've had a similar announcement overnight about the creation of a European Super League. And UEFA is threatening to sanction anybody who joins the Super, the, the, the 12 clubs are identified with the Super League. And and the, the vibe around the Super League is not unlike the vibe around the America First Caucus uh, announcement of, of Friday night. So uh, mm. on Sunday night, we had something similar, and then there was some backtracking, and I think there may be some backtracking about that. We're not a sports podcast, and we're getting beyond our, our ken, but the the um, the pattern is very similar. David, could you say something before we start, though, on what about what these caucuses in Congress are about anyway? Uh, well, so there, you know, there are dozens of these these caucuses in, in the House, um, and, a, and a few in the Senate, and some of them are uh, across chambers. You know, they are places for like-minded people or people of a similar background to, to come together for creating legislation, ideas, um, you know, a coalition of, of, of like-minded or like-interested uh, politicians. Uh, so they, you know, they have the Problem Solvers Caucus that is bipartisan. You've got, uh, you know, the, the sort of more conservative caucuses. Um, they're unofficial, you know, they don't have any sort of structural power, but they do have uh, sort of s symbolic status um, with, within Congress in terms of, of develop, you know, identifying different segments of the, uh, you know, 435 members of, of the House of Representatives. 
I mean, some are quite powerful. I mean, the Congressional Black Caucus, for example, is actually quite an important um, voice for uh, black rights within oh, within sure. Congress, but also beyond, and I mean, carries a lot of weight. Others less so. I once had lunch uh, with and hosted a visit by members of the Congressional Scotland Caucus. Um, <laughs> Great. And, and well, I, I won't comment much further on that, but to say they were very interested in whiskey and golf, I'll say that, but uh, uh, which seemed to be the purpose Scotland of their journey. For, so, you know, good for them. Um, uh, but uh, these were, these were, people who self-identified as Scottish Americans and had an interest in it, members of Congress and had an interest in Scottish American relations, which again, in and of itself was not a bad thing, but they were, it was interesting to, I, I did, one of the things they said to me was, and I don't know whether this is still true, but in order to get funding for a trip like the one they were on, they had to be bipartisan. So there were mm. members of both parties in the Congressional Scotland Caucus on this I almost said junket, but what I meant to say was this important diplomatic mission on behalf <laughs> of Congress to Scotland um, to have for research purposes. <laughs> yes, for research purposes. purposes and right. so I did. I did speak to 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 both members of both parties in the Congressional Scotland Caucus. Oh, I'm sure they were very interested in the the long history of the, the relationship between Scotland and the United States. Right. They uh, were. They were. So we want to unpack Anglo-Saxonism and what Anglo-Saxon political traditions may or may not mean. Uh, now, we're not an early medieval podcast, but we should probably uh, define historically uh, when people talk about the Angles and the Saxons, what who those people are. Uh, do you want to do that, Frank, or no, shall I? No, I was about to say, be my guest, Dave, because we're definitely right. not an early medieval podcast. All right. Um, so, and, 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 and sorry, David, before you start, I would say, I think the way this phrase gets used in contemporary parlance has very little to do with the people who were uh, lived in the place we now call England in the period between the fall of the Roman Empire and the arrival of the Normans. But yeah, go okay. ahead. So, so, well, I think you've basically said all I was was going to say in terms of trying to contextualize like what the historical Anglo's, uh, Angles and Saxons were. Uh, you know, these are uh, people who are immigrating to Britain uh, to what is now England. Uh, in starting in the fifth century, um, they established a number of kingdoms in in England, what is now England, um, and and occupy uh, the southern half of the island until the Norman invasion of 1066. So it refers to, you know, that that's the historical antecedent that people are referring to. But I think, as you point out, the ways in which people are using this term has very little to do specifically with the Angles or the Saxons or any political traditions that may have existed among them uh, for that 500 year period. I mean, basically, look, if you're on Netflix, watch The Last Kingdom. If you're on Amazon, watch Vikings, you'll you'll get the gist. <laughs> yeah, well, see, the Angles and the Saxons, they actually don't do that well militarily. They get beaten up by the Vikings. They get beaten up by the Normans. Um, but in the last kingdom, they do well. See, you haven't watched it. Oh, oh anyway. I watched the last kingdom. So, so, so okay. The, the, the fictional. You know, yeah, it's just that's you know, you know, David. That's just typical, yeah, typical Norman bullshit that you're you're spewing. <laughs> like usual, you've always been a Norman supremacist, you know, and and, and it's just pathetic. Just stop. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so historically, these are, are are people from Germany who came to to what is now England. Uh, and actually it's England because it's the land of the Angles, et cetera, right. Uh, but when people, Americans use it today or people, Americans have used it in the 18th century, um, 
how connected that is with the the actual historical angles and saxons is uh sort of up in the air although your man jefferson was interested in 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 anglo-saxonism or the anglo-saxon language in fact i i would argue you know he gets claimed as the first archaeologist or paleontologist and the first this the first that in america um He's, he's probably one of the earliest scholars of Anglo-Saxonism in what becomes the United States of America. Um, and I, I would take a, I want to take a moment and explain his relationship with this because he gets invoked both to criticize Anglo-Saxon, the study of Anglo-Saxons, uh, but also I imagine in this debate over the use of Anglo-Saxon traditions or, or culture as it, over the last weekend, he'll eventually be invoked in defense of that as well. People will say, hey, we're not racist, even Jefferson did this. And so I think actually, uh, I, if you'll indulge me, David, I will take oh, a moment sure. because I don't think Jefferson's, wait, did, did you just play a fanfare there? No, I think that was you. Right, could you hear that though? Yes, I could. <laughs> Oh, come on. Well, you have to leave that in because it sounded like in defense of Jefferson and there was the fanfare. I have no idea what that was. Um, sorry. Uh, anyway, I think his thinking on this needs some unpacking because on one hand, it is the antecedent to the modern uh, Anglo-Saxon movement, if you will. And in the, on, another hand, on the other hand, it's very, very different. Um, and I think uh, he and it are misunderstood as a consequence. So I, if, you'll, if you'll indulge me, I'll, I'll take a moment. Um, so... Jefferson became very, very interested in the Anglo-Saxons when he was a law student uh, right after he'd left William and Mary. So this is in the early 1760s um, when he was studying in, in, in Williamsburg with George Wythe, uh, his mentor. And he sought to teach himself Anglo-Saxon, the actual language. He was, uh, he was very, very interested in languages. And over the course of his life, he acquired more than 17 books on Anglo-Saxon as a language and texts in Anglo-Saxon and taught. So this taught is like Beowulf this. kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But he wants okay. to learn how to read it in the original. Uh, okay. And there, you know, there aren't a lot of Anglo-Saxon teachers in Williamsburg in the 1760s. Now, why does he want to do this? I mean, obviously there's lots of languages he could pick. Why did he pick this one? Thank you, David. That's an excellent question. There are two reasons. First of all, he thinks it's good intellectually because he sees the origins of English in Anglo-Saxon. Okay. Fair enough, I suppose. I mean, that's that's. He also that's, already knew French, so you know. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so okay. Um, but more importantly, and this gets to politics, uh, he sees in the Anglo-Saxon past, and this was a common theme among certain people in the 18th century, particularly adherents of the so-called Whig approach to history, uh, he sees the origins of English liberty hmm. in the Anglo-Saxon past. And the reason this is important is it antecedes in his thinking the modern monarchy and aristocracy, which are products of the so-called feudal yoke imposed by the Normans when William the Conqueror arrives in England in 1066. This, of course, a fairly simplistic, our, our medieval colleagues would tell us this is a simplistic approach to the history of that period and the political history of that period, but I'm, I'm this is Jefferson's channeling Jefferson's, approach. this is Jefferson's approach, which is pretty sophisticated for the 1760s. And the reason this is important is because he's making the case that the early English, the Anglo-Saxons, had a notion of liberty and self-government 
that antecedes its later institutions like the monarchy and the aristocracy. Now there were monarchs, of course, in, in or there were kings, there was king, kingship in Anglo-Saxon England, but the modern monarchy is a product in his reading of the, uh, the Norman conquest. And as a consequence of that, and so he sees the Anglo-Saxons, he has this romantic sense in which they would kind of have meetings in the forest. And this is, this is the kind of, these are the origins of parliament and theoretically self-government in America. And meetings crucially, in the forest? That's great. Yes, yes. Okay. So it, it's, it's all very Lord of the Ringsy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in a certain way. Um, and so this kind of elemental understanding of English liberty, kind of that the Anglo-Saxons Anglo brought with them uh, when they settled England, and that this is the origins of English liberty, which in turn was transmitted to America. And so he's, he's tracing a lineage, he's creating a non-monarchical tradition of liberty in Britain or England, laterally Britain, than in America. Crucially, and this is another important element to this, he also argued in his first major publication, The Summary View of the Rights of British America, that when the Anglo-Saxons emigrated from Europe to Britain, they brought their liberties with them. And he makes the case that when English, well, British, but mainly English people, emigrated as settlers to Virginia in the early 17th century, they, they too brought their liberties with them. So they didn't give up their liberties by emigrating. So there's an emigration story here that's key, a key element to it for him, because it means that liberty is basically something that can be transferred or that people bring with them. On the other hand, and, and we'll talk about how this develops during your century, mm. This becomes associated with some pretty unsavory assumptions about ethnicity and race. I would argue that while Jefferson's notion of liberty is certainly circumscribed by race, there's no doubt about that, hmm. his definition of who gets to exercise liberty is not ethnocentric. It's not, it's not defined by ethnicity with, again, the crucial exception of race, and we, could, we obviously need to talk about that. So, so let me explain this. He argues, he proposes a constitution for Virginia in 1776, and he proposes to give all free adult men in Virginia enough property to meet the property requirements to vote. So political rights, rights of the participation in the political community is not, should not be limited uh, beyond the limits set by race. Mm. So, so again, I'm not arguing that Jefferson is a great Democrat here, but in the context of the 18th century, this is a fairly capacious definition of rights and liberty, which is slightly, not slightly, I think it is at odds with the way Anglo-Saxonism will be, will evolve in the 19th century. And so when people both pro and con invoke Jefferson to criticize or to defend Anglo-Saxonism in contemporary parliaments, I think they're misreading him. I don't think it matters in the grand scheme of things. I think there are all kinds of problems with Anglo-Saxonism in, in contemporary parlance, and Jefferson's a small part of this, but Jefferson's understanding of it and the misunderstanding of his understanding of it are a part now, of this, a piece of this puzzle. Does if, that make if sense? We, if, if we put Jefferson then in conversation with Marjorie Taylor Greene, which would be the most amusing conversation to watch, um, and when she's, when at least uh, the document, which she is now disowned, I think, uh, talks about 
uniquely Anglo-Saxon political traditions. Would they agree about what those are? Well, if we put them in conversation, it would certainly make him question any assumptions he had about white supremacy. Because <laughs> <laughs> progress in the United States has probably not gone as he expected. Um, what, does she know about the kind of early Saxon Wheaton meeting in the forest to, um, which, you know, which as the antecedent to parliament, which is the antecedent to Congress of which she is now a member? Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know what is rattling around in her head. Um, you know, but I think that's the tradition he's talking about. That's the tradition. He wants Anglo-Saxon on the curriculum at the University of Virginia in the 1820s when he's an old man. He makes reference to Anglo-Saxons on the Great Seal of Virginia. You know, so, so he, he he sees this as really important. I don't think it's exactly the same understanding of those traditions that she has. He, his tradition. So I, I think this is where this this is where they differ, hmm. and this is where I think the uh, there's confusion about Jefferson's views and probably confusion about what I'm trying to say today. Jefferson is using Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Saxonism to expand the political community and to expand the definition of who is included, who gets to exercise rights. It's not our definition. I get that, right? So I'm not going to push this too far. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene and the people who aligned with her, aligned with her in Congress are actually seeking to limit the political community and limit who gets to exercise political rights and are using the language of Anglo-Saxonism to do that. So I think there is a fundamental difference between the, the two in, the, in that respect. You're looking really skeptical, David. Read it, listeners, you can't see. David is kind of looking out his window and smirking. <laughs> I don't think he's persuaded by what I'm saying. You know, I mean, the question that, that I have in thinking about Jefferson's relationship with Anglo-Saxonism and, and you mentioned, you know, thinking about is this, is he talking about it as a, a language community? Is he talking about it as a, as a race? You know, and, and, and I think those are, you know, obviously overlapping categories, but, 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 but also distinct, right? And, and when he's talking, when Jefferson's showing this sort of affinity for Anglo-Saxonism, is, is he then at sort of the same time articulating these ideas about um, racial superiority that we know that he held in other parts of his life? Yeah, I don't think so. So this is at the same time that he's very um, enthusiastic about Anglo-Saxonism. He's also taken in by one of the great um, kind of cons of the 18th century, which is McPherson's poem, Ossian, which yeah. is this, it's meant to be this kind of Gallic um, epic that had been discovered and he loves that too when if in strict anglo you know by by definition it's not anglo-saxon right mm. but what he likes is he likes the notion of finding the origins of cultures in their primitive antecedents mm. so to some extent he's and this is again this is very much a product of the enlightenment and enlightenment mm. thinking now you're right this is the same time that the enlightenment is giving us the early categorizations of what will become scientific racism in the 19th century so i i, I in no way want to intend to yeah. sugarcoat this and what he has to say about race in the notes on the state of virginia is the worst stuff he ever wrote and and but he's not I, I don't think he's making that connection in his mind directly between Anglo-Saxonism and his 
frankly, pretty objectionable racial views. I think the racial association with Anglo-Saxonism comes later in the 19th century. In yeah. the same way that he, he hints at nullification in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions in 1798, but that doesn't make him the father of secession in 1861, 40 years or 35 years after his death. Okay, I'll. This isn't a Jefferson podcast. No, no, I don't love Jefferson. That's a myth. That is, a, I, 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 I hate it when people get Jefferson wrong, and they always do because they invoke him on all sides of these things, uh, and and he gets invoked on. I, I in 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 preparing for this episode, I read about a, an essay that was published on the BBC History website. Um, by Professor Michael Wood of, of Manchester University, mm. and he, he's a medievalist, and he's talked about, well, the debate over the use of Anglo-Saxon, which we're going to get to, and he, inv he invoked Jefferson right away. This is a standard move, and I think it's premised on a misreading of Jefferson. Okay. Okay. That, uh, that, that, we spent a half an hour with me establishing that point. That's it. Fair enough. I don't okay. love Jefferson, David. Well, anyway, uh, one of the interesting things about, about Jefferson's affinity for uh, Anglo-Saxonism, both as a language and as a political uh, community or whatever, um, is that he seems to be uh, you know, part and parcel of a sort of a transatlantic interest in Anglo-Saxons that are happening at the end of the 18th and early part of the 19th century. There was a very popular, popular by the standards of, of 1799 uh, book, uh, The History of the Anglo-Saxons, published, uh, written by uh, Sharon Turner. Um, Publishing four volumes uh, that that really sort of laid out the history of of the Anglo-Saxon people, and of course this is written right at the height of the Napoleonic Wars, in which England is trying to distinct, obviously fighting a war. Britain, 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 Britain. Fair point. Come on, David. Well, this is about Anglo-Saxons. This is actually about <laughs> England, uh, the book, but. The fight against France was was critically important in terms of national identity. Um, and trying to sort of create a, a, a origin for English and then British institutions that were not rooted in the Norman Conquest. Right. Uh, and so these ideas about Anglo-Saxons gathering in forests and establishing these sort of political institutions that predate William the Conqueror and therefore create a, a foundation for English slash British liberty uh, distinct from from um, from that, uh, and this was a very uh, influential book. Uh, Walter Scott was a big fan of it. He actually incorporate, incorporates many of the ideas into Ivanhoe and some of his other works. And Ivanhoe, of course, uh, involves uh, one of those sort of last Nor or Saxon families. Uh, and so there's there's a point which these ideas are are you know Jefferson is is part part and parcel of uh, a, a resurgence, if you will, of Anglo-Saxon um, ideas at the end of, of the 18th and early part of the 19th century. Um, when we though get to the, to the 19th century, this is really when, when Anglo-Saxonism really does get um, used in, in the in a variety of ways to, to, to create white supremacy uh, and become sort of a, a euphemism or just sort of another way of, of, of articulating ideas about white supremacy. Um, and you see this really, especially developing in the 1830s. Um, we find things like there's a, I found a Virginia newspaper that says, it is 
peculiar to the character of the Anglo-Saxon race of men to which we belong, that there's never been, it has never been contented to live in the same country with another distinct race upon terms of equality. And basically what they're saying there is, we are Anglo-Saxons and therefore we are either going to dominate other races, uh, not because we want to, but because we have to. It's sort of an embedded part of our nature as a race. Uh, and you find sort of manifestations of that uh, to, to, to articulate ideas about manifest destiny, whether it's, so it's displacement and, and, and uh, murder of Native Americans uh, to justify slavery as an institution, uh, that it's sort of implied that it's sort of an inherent part of, of whiteness is this sort of sense of, of domination. Uh, but in terms of like language, Anglo-Saxon isn't the dominant term necessarily. Uh, lots of white Southerners, for instance, use Anglo-Norman um, as, as a description of who they are as a race, um, in part to distinguish themselves from, from Irish immigrants um, who, who, who many uh, native born Americans didn't like. It's a term though that really picks up a lot of steam in the 1890s. Uh, mm. And I think it goes along with um, events on both sides of the Atlantic. This is a, a term that uh, is used to, to justify and support um, American imperialism, uh, uh, missionary activity, um, and of course, uh, white supremacy within the United States, whether that's in the form of, of segregation or to justify lynching or, or what have you. Um, one of the probably the most uh, well-known proponents of Anglo-Saxonism is Josiah Strong, um, who was a uh, Protestant minister, one of the, the, the leaders of the social gospel, who writes a book in 1885 called Our Country, which articulates you know, a vision of the United States as an Anglo-Saxon uh, country that is uh, supposed to sort of spread the, the, its ideas around the world. Um, he, he talks about, and he says, the, uh, the race is destined to dispossess many weaker ones, assimilate others, and mold the remainder until it has Anglo-Saxonized mankind. Um, and he links Anglo-Saxonism with, not only with race, but with ideas about, about liberty uh, and, and Christianity. Uh, and he sees those as being sort of part and parcel of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I have, in preparation for this episode, David, I had listeners, I read an essay in The Atlantic from 1896 by a guy named George Burton Adams, who sounds very Anglo-Saxony. Um, and, and I read it so you don't have to, but I, the subheading will tell you, well, the headline and the subheading will tell you all you need to know. And it's mm -hmm. called The United States and the Anglo-Saxon Future. And the subheading is, by judicious action in the right way and at the right time, we may assume for ourselves that position of leadership and organization, which England hesitates to take, and thus to make the world empire of the Anglo-Saxon a certainty. And then it goes on about that in that language. Interestingly, it prefigures the um, uh, Russo-Japanese War, which will happen in, in the next decade, because it talks about uh, the fear of a rising Asian power and the the the, the rivalry between Japan and, and Russia and East Asia, but uh, and who will rule China? 
that's ironic. Uh -huh. But but um, it, basically, the theme of this thing is, um, you know, the Anglo-Saxon countries are best placed to dominate the world only if they're willing to do so, and indeed they have a duty to do so. And he, Adams is arguing that um, the United States needs to do it because England, again, he's using the term England, not, not Britain, uh, is unwilling or unable so to do. I think there's a distinction to be drawn, David, hmm. between the invocation of historic Anglo-Saxons and Anglo-Saxonism to serve a contemporary political agenda. And I think mm -hmm. Jefferson was doing that. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing that. So in that sense, I, I to go back to your earlier question, they would they are speaking the same language. So there's there's invoking a certain vision of the Anglo-Saxon past, whatever that may be, mm -hmm. to justify contemporary political positions. And then there's the use of Anglo-Saxon as an adjective basically to describe Anglophone people, and particular, and certain types of Anglophone, white Anglophone people, mm. uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries, to justify imperialism in the way uh, the quote you gave from Strong, or the one I just gave from George Burton Adams. I don't. I think they're allied, but they're not quite the same thing. So I think the protesters in Charlottesville, who had some sort of, you know, Nordic shields and all this mm. kind of crap, they were they were very much seeing themselves as invoking. Anglo-Saxon, I'm using inverted quotes mm. here, uh, air quotes here, um, um, a certain version of the Anglo-Saxon past, but that's not the same thing as the kind of white supremacist imperial language we hear, you know, like Churchill writing a history of the English-speaking peoples. That's Anglo-Saxon as a kind of catch-all term during the age of imperialism, which is slightly different from invoking the historical the imagined historic past of the Anglo-Saxons for contemporary political purposes. Would you agree with that distinction or not? I, I think those are, I, mean, I think those, there's, a, there's a slippery slope between those two things though. Sure. Um, you know, and when we, so thinking about the 1890s is a moment when a lot of this is happening. Um, and you mentioned one Adams, I'm gonna mention other Adams. Uh, Herbert Baxter Adams, um, one of the founders of the American Historical Association, uh, Professor at Johns Hopkins um, for, talked a lot in the in the 1880s and 1890s about a Teutonic germ theory to explain American political institutions. And his idea was basically these ideas started in Germany, hence the Teutonic bit, came with the Saxons and Angles to England, who then transported them to to the American colonies, uh, and you know he was inheriting them. And he writes books called things like Germanic Origin of the New England Town, Saxon Tithing Men in America, you know, and so he's drawing this sort of very direct line between the Angles and the Saxons, uh, you know, and the New England Town, which is then sort of seen as the direct sort of antecedent of American democracy. Um, and Adams has a very uh, famous student who uh, all of our listeners know, and that's Woodrow Wilson, um, you know, who has a very similar sort of set of, of ideas about, about where American liberty comes from and about the relationship between American liberty and race and who deserves liberty and who doesn't. Um, thinking about the sort of Teutonic germ theory, one of the things that, that uh, People like Frederick Jackson Turner were arguing against 
in his, you know, his frontier thesis was the Teutonic germ theory, where, where Turner is saying, look, it's not German people a thousand years ago that gave us liberty. It's it's the existence of the frontier that that creates the you know the particular American uh, character. Yeah, so it's not it's not the Saxons. It's the forest. It's the forest, <laughs> right? It's the forest. They don't have to be Saxons in the forest. It could be anybody in the forest. I don't it's know. the forest that makes you Democrats, not being Saxons. That's right. Um, you know, and, and it, but but the 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 link with this kind of academic work and the really brutal, ugly white supremacist work is very closely tied. You know, I'm thinking of people like you know Madison Grant, who who wrote the the passing of the great white the great race uh, in in 1916, which is sort of the product of this, where he's you know talking about this ancient history of of, of what he called the Nordics, um, but is basically the Anglo Anglo Saxons, you know that that are, he's connecting Germany and 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 Southern Britain and the United States, and he's saying, look, we have the 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 Nordics have a very particular uh, uh, culture as a product of their their blood, you know, and he 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 makes an argument for immigration restrictions. He makes uh, arguments for anti uh, uh, miscegenation laws. He makes uh, arguments for sterilization of people of, of weaker races in his mind, um, you know, and, and this is these are ideas that are dangerous right i mean these are ideas that 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 hitler pointed to and said those are good ideas i like those ideas um and that many states in the, in the united states adopted uh, versions of, of eugenics programs in, in part of because of people like like madison grant who who gave this sort of academic and historical justification um for for really disastrous uh, and harmful uh, programs there's an interesting tension here because on one hand there's an assertion uh, that Anglo-Saxons are superior, however we define Anglo-Saxons, but they're also beleaguered and under threat. And this, yes. this, this again is consistent with um, what we see in, in the kind of discourse around Anglo-Saxonism in contemporary U.S. Mm. politics, which is people feeling both superior and threatened at the same time, or asserting superiority from a position of apparent weakness, mm. I guess, is the yeah. way to put it. Um, you know, and th this this language of Anglo-Saxonism only sort of picks up steam in the first half of the 20th century, right? It becomes more and more prominent to talk about, about Anglo-Saxon values, Anglo-Saxon race. Uh, this happens during, during the 19-teens. Um, you know, Wilson evokes it repeatedly Uh, the Klan does in the 1920s. Um, they repeatedly talk about defending the Anglo-Saxon race from um, from other groups, uh, and obviously this is a moment in which there's not, you know, the the Klan is hostile not only to African Americans but to uh, immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, and so you know, signaling Anglo-Saxon is is in part to signal that they are not Italian American or they're not you know, uh, Russian American or Greek American or what have you. Yeah, or Catholics or Jews. Exactly. You know, right. that, I mean, that's, um, so, so because Anglo-Saxon becomes closely aligned, at least in its 
use in the vernacular, mm. or its vernacular use, I should say, uh, with Protestantism, notwithstanding the fact that the Angles and Saxons were not Protestants. No. <laughs> but they're the antecedents, you know, in this Baxter, mm. Herbert Baxter Adams kind of thesis of, of germ theory. You know, you go from the German forests to the English forests to Luther eventually, right? You know, so mm. it's, um, and so this is a way, I mean, because the, the, the anxiety in the in the teens and twenties in America and the and the use of Anglo-Saxon as an assertion of, of superiority coincides with mass immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe of predominantly non-Protestant migrants, hmm. many of whom a large number of whom are non-Christian for that matter, and in the ethnic typology of the day are seen as not being white. Um, it's a yeah, whole different. Because- uh, discussion but yeah but, well, so, no, but so, i think that's part and parcel of the kinds of ways which race was constructed in in the right. 19th century in the early part of the 20th century that that white as a category uh has gradations to it you know in which anglo-saxons were considered to be at the top but that then there were sort of you know uh lesser versions of of, of whiteness as, a, as it were um now you, know, you mentioned Protestantism. One of the sort of usage of the term Anglo-Saxon is, is the, the, the idea of a wasp, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, which emerges in the 1950s. It seems to, that seems to be when the term emerges. What's the difference uh, both in usage and in um, meaning between, between uh, wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and Anglo-Saxon in the way we've been discussing? Uh, I mean, to some, on some, to some extent, very little. I mean, uh, basically, Anglo, Anglo-Saxons who live in suburbs in the post-war 50s are wasps, right? <laughs> and, and belong to country clubs and drink martinis. Um, mm. so, so, so to some extent, it's the um, kind of tamer version of it, I suppose. Uh, I, I do think there's a difference between uh, wasps or WASP as it's used in the 50s and 60s, and Anglo-Saxon as it's used today. So mm. Anglo-Saxon today is a dog whistle for white supremacists. It's, let's not beat about the bush. And again, that's in contemporary parlance, not as used by scholars. We can talk about the debate about scholars mm. in a minute. Um, and WASP is not, WASP might be premised on that, you know, the W in WASP, and we, we I'll, hand over to you in a yeah. second, David, on this, but, you know, in contemporary parlance means white. So, so of course, there's a racial dimension to this, but it's more, it's almost an ethnic identifier in the same way that being Irish American or Italian American mm. is, is an identifier in the 50s and 60s. It's a way for um, Yankee Americans, at least in, in New England, <laughs> you know, to identify themselves. So on one hand, it's a rather, yeah. rather, I'm not, a benign ethnic category. On the other hand, it has these associations that are perhaps more worrying. Tell us about the W in WASP, David. Yeah, so well, so actually, you know, the, the term white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, originates with political scientists and with sociologists in the 1950s are trying to sort of categorize them. Uh, and some of the early usage of it, the W doesn't stand for white, which seems to be redundant with Anglo-Saxon anyway, yeah. um, but man's for wealthy. And so it was wealthy Anglo-Saxon Protestant that which then became white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I'm not quite sure why that change happened, 
because uh, it does seem, uh, in at least current usage, somewhat redundant, like a ATM machine. Um, but uh, you know, it does has a sort of cultural signifier and a, a political signifier uh, as much as, as as much as anything. The other term that sort of emerges at that same time, and I'm wondering what the relationship is, is Judeo-Christian, which seems to occupy a, a similar political space uh, that Anglo-Saxon does. I was wondering what you think the, the relationship is between those terms. Because that also seems to be a product of the 50s to me. It seems to be a product of the 50s, but it's also one that's invoked in contemporary parlance um, by people on the right, and they use it in a different way than, say, historians of religion do. Hmm. <laughs> so in contemporary parlance, it seems to me it's a way of saying, it's a way of including Jews and Catholics who are now hmm. okay, to some extent, according to white supremacists hmm. in America, uh, to, but to exclude others, that is non-whites, but particularly um, people who are neither Jewish nor Christian. Uh, uh, so particularly Muslims, but not only yeah. Muslims. Yeah, we had the terrible shootings of Sikhs in, in Indianapolis over the weekend, for example. Um, and so Judeo-Christian is a way of, at least in the way it's evolved, to create a community. It's a, it, it's a, it's a bit like, it's a, it's a broader definition hmm. or broader category than Anglo-Saxon, but it's used in a similar way. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the the, the, the rise of that term, I think, is connected with, with a couple of things. You know, one is the Cold War. Yeah. You know, to distinguish the United States from the Soviet Union, godless Soviet Union, we are and we are we are Judeo-Christian. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about Judeo-Christian is it's a term that Christian Jews a lot more than Jews do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think the other sort of response is in response to the Holocaust. You know, is saying, yeah. look, we as Americans um, hate Nazis because we fought Nazis. And we hate the Holocaust, even though we didn't do very much during the war to stop it. Um, and, and this is a way of, of signaling that kind of, of, of political stance, uh, along with all the things you were mentioning in terms of, of trying to sort of reinforce these traditional, these ideas about about family and religion and, and sort of the broader category of things that are sort of encompassed with it. Um, when you mentioned earlier that, that it's just a, a dog whistle for, for white supremacy, um, it, w w when people are using Anglo-Saxon today, and I don't want to sort of get inside of Marjorie Taylor Greene's head too much, but- Plenty of space. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> um, I don't disagree with you. Uh, the the does she just simply mean white? And yeah, I, I, again, isn't for saying white. Yeah, I mean, I think well, well, I think there are two things going on here. I think I think that's what it usually means now for for contemporary white supremacists. I do think it does harken back to that early twentieth century of kind of excluding ethnic people and excluding Jews and and you know I think so I think there's a strain of anti-Semitism to it, um, mm. but I I, I think. And then they also, there's a hearkening back to an imagine that this is similar to what Jefferson and people in the Enlightenment were doing with their enthusiasm for the rustic. Mm. Uh, there's a sort of 
and I don't know whether I, I don't think her level of thinking goes this far, but I think you, you see some of this mm. in the language, you know, using invoking Odin and all this kind of nonsense that you see yeah. in some of the iconography at these protests. Uh, you know, the guy with the horns on his head at the capital yeah. thing, you know, this stuff that there's an imagined kind of um, primitive yet uh, brave and democratic and uh, this sort of imagined past of that's very martial, it's very violent, it's pre-Christian in many respects, and it's hearkening. So I think there's, there's, a, there's a use of language. I think the use of this language evokes a fantasy about what the Anglo-Saxon period was like as well, but it's mm. white, but it's a particular kind of whiteness. It's a particular yeah. kind of whiteness that's that's frankly brutal and violent and willing to use force to defend itself. Yeah, I think, uh, that's, think that's right. And I think it's disconnected in that sense from people who are actually of English descent. One could be in a fin of have a fan be a fan of Anglo-Saxonism in 2021 in the United States, uh, but I have ancestors who are actually French. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, sorry. So, um, so it's it's an expansive. You know, the the who who gets embraced by being Anglo-Saxon today is more of a political statement than it is a racial or ethnic. And in that sense, to return to the beginning of our conversation, it's more Jeffersonian, because the argument I was attempting to make was Jefferson's definition of Anglo-Saxon was a capacious one for white people. And oh, okay. so, to some, no, no, I, I don't think he'd be in favor of, so this proves I don't love him, David. <laughs> you okay. know, there, there, there are echoes there. Um, so uh, Nancy and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are, are two bottles in, they're going to say, actually, <laughs> we agree with each other more than we thought we did. <laughs> That's right. Now read my 30-page essay on Anglo-Saxon orthography that I wrote. <laughs> um, but um, so, so that's right. I mean, it's, it's a category of whiteness that has little to do with actual, actually being descended because there are, you know, from Britain or being English or English-American because that kind of category doesn't have any resonance anymore anyway. Uh, it's, it's not about that. I mean, you know, so there are Italian American Anglo Saxon enthusiasts, yeah. I'm sure. You know, even though yeah. that's a, a contradiction in terms. You know, as we've talked about, there's there's some some transatlantic elements to this. Um, you know, and, and Sarah Churchwell, uh, as the historian, has, has talked some about about these relationships. Uh, but you're more familiar with contemporary British politics, Frank, Frank, than I am. Um, I don't hear this language of Anglo Saxonism as much in the UK as I do in the US. And you get a little listening enough, or is it? I, th I think you're not listening enough. I mean, you do get a little bit of it among the kind of Britain first crowd. And if you go to the more extreme parts of the Brexit social media landscape and the ah. BNP, and the, I mean, I'm not recommending anybody does. I, this, I try to avoid all of these things. So. You, see, you, see, you see some of this language. It's not as fervent, to be sure. And there's a very interesting debate that took place. And I, I'm going to quickly get myself out of my area of expertise. Mm. But that's happened among early medievalists on this very question. So early medievalists in the United States, particularly during the Trump years and after Charlottesville, mm. really kind of became exercised about the use of Anglo-Saxon in, in the discourse. And I don't know what's happening with my phone, it's just gone off. Um, and, and actually talked about dropping the term Anglo-Saxon hmm. from 
Anglo-Saxon studies. I think Anglo-Saxon studies is funny because on the American side of the Atlantic, that spells ass. But uh, <laughs> it's less funny on this side. Um, and, but there was a debate, and 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 some and medievalists. There were other medieval, and they were saying, well, actually, the field is is you know is racist. It's dominated by you know it's got many of the problems that many academic fields do, um, and we need to revisit this. And so there were questions about the field itself, but also the way the term and the and the some of the material in the field had been exploited in contemporary political discourse. And there was a little bit of a backlash. And as I said, there's a very good essay by Michael Wood on this, um, on this side of the water where some British academic, British based academics were saying, no, no, Anglo-Saxon is just a term that we scholars of this particular time and place use to describe that time and place. And this has nothing to do with American contemporary American political discourse. Mm. That then set off a backlash against the backlash of some British academics saying, well, actually, we have similar problems when it comes to racism and exclusions in, in higher education and, we, and, and in the academy, and we need to consider this. So there was a, there's been an ongoing debate about the use of the term Anglo-Saxon itself among academics. Again, I've just, I've been on the periphery yeah. of this. I've, I've followed it because I'm, I'm kind of interested in these debates, but I can't claim to have any expertise. Well, in, I, and if, and if I've inadequately summed it up, I apologize to my medieval colleagues, to our medieval colleagues, because I probably have, but uh, that's you know, I, I think a similar debate is happening in classics, which is, is yeah, that's similar right. kinds of, of issues with, with the ways in which the discipline has been oh. used in the past to, to justify white supremacy and, and slavery and, and other things. Um, you know, it's intriguing that the, the most, and you mentioned uh, Lord of the Rings earlier, which seems to have an outsized influence in people's understanding of all this, uh, was of course written by a, a person who was an a Anglo-Saxonist, uh, Tolkien's, that was his actual sort of day yeah. job besides writing Lord of the Rings was, was, was studying Anglo-Saxon literature, uh, which seems to, you know, I think those books and, and media derived from them have... Uh, I don't know, shape this in, in weird ways that, that somebody needs to unpack. Well, I think that, well, I think that imagery, uh, which again has been exploited on the far right about a sort of heroic past that we can mm. return to. Um, I mean, I, I, again, I'm not saying Tolkien deliberately fueled that, but the imagery has, has, has definitely been appropriated by yeah. the far right. Well, the, the, the racial imagery in those books and, and in actually C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, which are sort of of the same moment uh, in geography, um, you know, have, have, have really serious issues, but nonetheless. Uh, right, so we will see what happens with the America First Caucus. And of course, the term America First is, as we've mentioned in the past, has all kinds of really awful connotations that go back uh, to the America First Committee, but even before that, to its usage by the, by the Klan and by, by other groups. Uh, so yeah, the America First Caucus may be, may be uh, dead before it's even... Uh, a real thing, but we will see uh, whether this term Anglo-Saxon, how it gets used in the future. Right, uh, time for last drops. Frank, what you got? I want to recommend a forthcoming book by uh, Julie Flavel. Uh, Julie is from Massachusetts and lives in Scotland, so we are part of a very small club. And uh, <laughs> Julie's a very fine scholar. She was at the University of Dundee for many years. Um, and she has a forthcoming book called The Howe Dynasty, The Untold Story of a Military Family and the Women Behind Britain's Wars for America. Many of our listeners will be familiar with the roles of the brothers 
Richard and William Howe. Uh, Richard Howe was an admiral in the Royal Navy. William Howe was a general of the British Army. But their sister Caroline played a crucial role in the diplomacy around the American Revolution, as Julie uh, demonstrates in this book. I've had the privilege of reading the book in, in, in manuscript. Um, and it's a really, really, it's a great book. It's well written. And it's really, really good on the um, participation of women in high politics and diplomacy during the 18th century and around the American Revolution, which is something that uh, frankly doesn't get enough attention. And Julie does a really, really good job of recovering that element to the story. And it's it's a really good read. It's coming out. I think it's not coming out till July, but it's uh, I, I've recently seen some. Uh, well, maybe people will be able to go on vacation then they could take it on their beach holiday. Exactly. So the Howe Dynasty by Julie Flavel. Yeah. Okay, what about great. you, Dave? What about you, David? Uh, uh, I want to recommend an article in The Atlantic uh, by David Truer called, uh, the, the, the title of which is Return the National Parks to the Tribes. Uh, and the argument of, of the, the, the article is that uh, national parks, which many people, including myself, see as, as one of the great gems of the United States, uh, have been, he says, basically is all on land stolen from native peoples, land that they were often you know, promised in treaties to, to control in perpetuity. Uh, and he argues that, that, that one of ways to create sort of social justice now is to um, return all of that, that land to native uh, peoples and native governments. Um, it's a provocative article, makes you sort of think about native, uh, national parks in a, a, a different way. Uh, so I want to recommend that. I don't know whether it works as an actual proposal itself, but it's a, at least a thought-provoking piece. Good, excellent. Until next time, Frank, cheers. Yep, cheers, David. Enjoy your mead in the mead hall and all <laughs> the other things that Anglo-Saxons do. <laughs> Will do. <laughs>